Second Thessalonians chapter 1. You guys ready? Today we begin Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Read with me, if you will, verses 1 and 2, and tell me if these verses sound familiar. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? Well, it would definitely sound familiar if you were with us about a month and a half ago, maybe, when we started 1 Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Just back up a couple pages, maybe a few pages, to the very first verse of 1 Thessalonians. It reads this way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost identical word for word. It's almost like you wonder if Paul had one of those form letters, just, but he didn't. They didn't have form letters. They didn't have uh, copiers. He intentionally, I guess, wrote these words the same, 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. Um, these are almost identical. And you may remember when we began 1 Thessalonians that I showed you uh, some slides. You guys want to see those slides to kind of remember? I think Tom's going to pull this up. Uh, this is the way we began 1 Thessalonians. We talked about how the fact that Paul must have been really advanced because he wrote his letters in the same form that we do our emails. First he says, Here, here's who it's from, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You like the three amigos? I made that up. <clears throat> then he says, who, who is it to? The Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica. Um, notice that we're copied on it, Calvary Chapel of the Lakes, meaning that God speaks to us as well as he speaks to the Thessalonians. Um, the date was back then, on, on the first letter, was 52 A.D., and the subject was, he shall return. Jesus is coming back. Can you hit the next slide? It's almost the same. The from is the same. The two is the same. The copy is the same. But the date is about a year later. Second Thessalonians was probably written about a year later. It still would be either the second or the third uh, letter that Paul wrote, depending on whether you put Galatians before Thessalonians. So it's a very early letter for Paul. And the subject is a little bit different. The subject is, has he already returned? See, that's the thing that Paul is going to address. That's the main reason he's writing this second letter, because there had been some, some talk, some rumors, that perhaps the Lord has already come, and that there's this, the day of tribulation has already arrived, and we're in the midst of it. Paul wants to clear up that confusion, and he's going to as we go uh, over these next few weeks, maybe a couple of weeks, as we go in Second Thessalonians. Now, because, I think you can close that down. Because we covered these same words, verses 1 and 2, in depth in Paul's first letter, I'm going to simply read over them and let you guys get the CD or the audio from the web and see where we expanded on that. But there is one word that's different from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. Let me read it for you. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one word difference from first to second. It's the word our. In First Thessalonians, he said God the Father. Second Thessalonians, he said God our Father. Now, I don't think Paul was trying to particularly relay some, some great spiritual truth to the Thessalonians in this but it did get me to thinking. 
It gave me the first application point for today, for you guys, for me. To you, in your experience with God, the Father, is He just God, the Father? Or is He God, your Father? Is He just God, the Father, like, like George Washington is the Father of our country? The Father? Right, you know, George Washington is the father of our country, like some far away person to whom you owe a lot to, someone who did a lot for you in the past, someone whom you admire, someone that you'd love to meet someday, the father, or is he God, your father, your daddy? The Bible says that Jesus made it possible that we could call him Abba, father, which means daddy. See, there's a, a huge difference in that word. Either he's God the Father, or he's also God your Father. God your Father is the one who's always near, who loves to fellowship with you, who wants to fellowship with you now. He's the one who dries your tears. He's the one who calms your nerves. Everything that a daddy does for a little one. He's the one who says, look, you can do it. He's the one who holds you tightly in the midst of a storm. Your father. There's a huge difference in that one word. If he's just the father to you, then you have a picture in your head of a, of a God that maybe doesn't have time for you. He doesn't really care about the little stuff in your life. But if he's God, my father, then he cares about every single thing. I'm reminded how my little boys, I've got a two-year-old and a six-year-old, when I walk in the door, first thing they do is, is grab my hand. And uh, Isaac says, Daddy, bed, Daddy, bed. And they want me to go on the bed and wrestle with them and just hang out and do silly stuff. And I love it because I'm their father. God has time for you. If he's your father, he's concerned about everything in your life. Jesus died so that you might know God as your father, not just as the father. Okay, we're going to move on. This book now can be easily outlined. Chapter, there's only three chapters. Easily outlined by the three chapters. Chapter one, you could say, is a chapter of commendation. Paul is commending the Thessalonians for the great things, the, the great qualities that they have. Um, and we're going to see that today. Chapter two, though, is a chapter of correction. Paul is going to correct some misunderstandings, some things that have uh, the church has let creep into their thinking that has really taken them off track. And then chapter 3 would be a chapter of conduct. In other words, because of this correction now, how do, how do we conduct our lives? How do we live in the light of this knowledge that I've shared with you? So chapter 1, commendation. Chapter 2, correction. And chapter 3, conduct. Let's cover chapter 1 this morning. This is Paul's commendation to this church. Some of this is going to sound pretty familiar to you, those of you who've been with us in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 3, Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Paul says, Guys, we are bound, we are obligated, we owe God much thanks because of you. He says, because your faith grows exceedingly. 
Paul says we are obligated, we owe God thanks to you because your faith grows exceedingly. The word is huperoxano. It means to increase beyond measure. Verse 3 again says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. We're bound. We're obligated. We owe God thanks for you. When he says your faith grows exceedingly, he means to increase beyond measure. And then he says the love of every one of you all abounds. The word means to superabound. These are two superlative words. Huperxano means to increase beyond all measure. And the word abounds means to superabound. Paul says your faith has increased beyond measure. Your love for each other superabounds. Now notice the last part of verse 3 that Paul apparently a Texan. He says, and the love of every one of y'all abounds toward each other. You see that? The word all there is pass. It means, we've seen that before, it means each and every one. I think that when people come here, I think in general they sense that we love God and that we love each other. But here's a question. Could Paul write these words to us? We're copied on the letter. Could he write these words to us? Could he say to Calvary Chapel of the Lakes, I've got to thank God for you, brethren, because the, the love of each and every one of you is shown in abundance toward each and every one of you. You see, he's talking about every single person who calls this church their home acting in superabounding love to every single other person. So let me ask you, who in the, who in the room makes this difficult for you? Who in the room makes it difficult for you to love everyone in the room? For you, who is it that makes this a difficult task? Like, in other words, who is it that you say, well, I can love a lot of people, but, oh, that one? That's tough. Whoever that is, Paul says, he commends the Thessalonians. He says, you guys love, each one of you loves all the others. It's amazing. One more thing now before we leave verse 3. If you were with us in 1 Thessalonians, there were three things that Paul praised these guys for in, first, in chapter 1, verse 3. You guys remember chapter 1 of the first book. He says, remember, uh, this is verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Remember that? The triplets of Thessalonians, faith, hope, and love. See here, Paul reiterates Two of those three. He says, your faith grows exceedingly and your love superabounds. Why doesn't he mention hope? He mentions faith and love, but hope is like very loudly silent. It's missing. What about hope? Well, apparently some of these folks had lost hope. I think they'd lost hope precisely because of the false doctrine that was going through this church. This is why Paul writes a letter. Some people were being told, look, the day of the Lord has already come. We're in the middle of the great tribulation. And some folks had lost hope. They said, well, what's the deal? I mean, we've been, we've been working hard. We've been loving on people. And we find ourselves in the middle of the great tribulation. They were falsely told this. And there were even letters that had supposedly come from Paul. Paul has to clear that up in chapter 2. Apparently people were standing up and prophesying, saying, 
behold, we are in the, the day of the Great Tribulation. Chapter 2, Paul deals with that. These guys had lost hope because they were told that they were already in this tribulation. So he leaves out this word hope, and he's going to deal with it in chapter 2 on Thursday when we, when we talk there. Look now with me at verse 4. <clears throat> he says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Paul says, Look, you guys, we brag about you wherever we go. Paul says, Every place I go. Now, by this time, Paul has gone from Thessalonica. You have, I'll let you run it up again. By this time, uh, you guys see Thessalonica over there? There you go. Oh, he's good with the pointer, isn't he? <laughs> this time, he'd already gone from Thessalonica down to Berea. There you go. And all the way down to Athens. And he either wrote uh, the first letter in Athens or maybe in Corinth. But by now, he's definitely in Corinth. See Corinth? Oh, a little further. Yeah. Corinth, number eight. There you go. Paul has, has made all of this, um, all this trip. And he says... Look, guys, wherever we go, to all the churches that we meet, we say, hey, let me tell you about this group in Thessalonica. These guys are so amazing. He says, verse 4, so that we also ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you all endure. Paul says, everywhere I go, I brag about you guys. That church in Thessalonica, they're persecuted relentlessly. They have trial after trial, and yet... They show this great patience. Now, the word patience there, probably best understood when you go back to the Greek, it means, the word is hupomone. And what it means is steadfastness, constancy. It means to hold up under, to be steadfast under persecution or under trials. Paul says, everywhere we go, we're bragging about the fact that you guys are holding up under this tremendous trial. Paul is saying how proud he is of these guys for their endurance under persecution and tribulation. Then look at verse 5. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. He says, manifest evidence. Your endurance under these trials is proof. Manifest evidence. It's proof of the righteous judgment of God. Now, these verses that we're going through in these next few little bit, they're hard to keep track of. At least they were for me. That's another reason why it's really important that we all focus right now on the word. If you will, follow with me here. I'm gonna, we're gonna, eventually, we're going to read um, a big section of it. But he says, this, your endurance is a manifest evidence. It's proof of the righteous judgment of God. What does that mean? The righteous judgment. It doesn't even seem to make sense. Your endurance is proof of the righteous judgment of God. Well, this will help. Look at the word judgment. The word there is krisis. K-R-I-S-I-S. It means a separating Sundering, a separation, a trial, a contest, a selection. Paul is saying your endurance under trials is manifest evidence. It's proof of God's righteous selection, of the fact that he's separating. You guys know that God separates. Now, go back to verse 4. See the word tribulations there? You guys know that... Uh, the there's a word in Latin called the tribulum. It was actually a mechanism, a device. It was a sled that they, it was a wooden sled that they rolled over wheat. A heavy sled. They would roll over wheat. And what would happen is that the chaff, right, the chaff from the wheat would come above the sled and it would fly off. 
And the wheat, though it was pressed down, though it was under tribulation, tribulum, it would remain and the chaff would blow away. Paul says to these Thessalonians, your patient endurance, the fact that you're holding up under the tribulum, if you will, proves how smart God is, how wise he is, how just he is, and how he has selected you. Verse 5 again, which is manifest evidence, which is proof of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. The title of the message today is Counted Worthy. We find the word here and in verse 11. Look, at, look down at verse 11. It says, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. The word worthy there is kataxio. Interesting, it means to weigh, to weigh heavy. Having heavy weight. Having the weight of another thing with like value. There's a, there's a thread running through these verses of, of weights and measures. The Bible talks about how God is a just God. He will not deal with uh, uneven weights. Um, when, we have, when we have our, uh, excuse me, our justice system, what's the picture of it? It's weights, two, two weights. The fact is that justice requires, requires that things be even, things be made right. You guys begin to see the, the illustration coming into focus here? The tribulum is dragged across the wheat. Anybody feel like you've been had a tribulum over you? The tribulum is dragged across the wheat, and because it has weight, it stays. It remains. It has value. It has weight. But what happens to the chaff? It blows away. Paul says to these guys, look, you guys are proving yourselves to be wheat. says your patient endurance under the tribulum of this world shows that you're wheat. Now, let's get a running start and read some more. Verse 5, I'll paraphrase verse 5. Your endurance is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment, the righteous separation of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Another reason that this portion of Scripture is difficult is because it's one long run-on sentence. Paul, bless his heart, I don't know why he does this to me. He goes in this really run, one long run-on sentence. What Paul, I think, is saying here in this roundabout way is this. God's going to make it right. God will make it right. God will repay. Maybe some of you guys have been wronged. You've been wronged by, by people that are godless. And you think, God, where are you? Where are you, my defender? God says, I will repay. He says, there's coming a time when those who are persecuting you, who are troubling you, I will trouble them. There's coming a time when you who are now troubled will have, oh, that's a great word, rest. Rest. But let's come back to the idea of separation. As we go through this, first we begin to see there's a separation. There's two parties in this chapter, right? There's those who are currently, presently under tribulation. That's the Thessalonians. What's their future? Their future is 
rest. But there's also those who are presently causing tribulation. What's their future? Well, it's not good. Look at the middle of verse 7 and following. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Verses 7 and 8 say that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, this is interesting. I saw two articles yesterday in the paper, and they were, they were right next to each other. And, of course, I was going to bring the paper. Forgot it. It's not here. But I think I remember the gist of it. Two, inter- two interesting articles that had to do with fire and with Christianity. This was in the uh, nation part of the Orlando Sentinel yesterday. One talked about, maybe, maybe you heard about it, um, this guy ran into a church in Oregon and doused people with gas and set some of them on fire, set the church on fire. He actually was persecuting th- this church in Oregon. It's not like it was, you know, over in Asia. In Oregon, he was persecuting these people with fire. He was crazy. He basically said that he um, had been in psychiatric care and that kind of stuff. So there was that one. And then right above that was an article about how there were some guys who uh, were graduates of the Air Force Academy, and they had brought a, a case to, to suit against the Air Force Academy because the chaplain had, uh, they said, unwielded, you know, wielded unduly influence on them by saying, you need to come to church service, um, basically, if you don't, then you're going to risk the fires of hell. And the Air Force Academy, some of these graduates were like, you're, you're uh, imposing upon our rights by, by telling us your view of, of uh, this hell, fire, and damnation. Interesting, there's the fire that the world gives. Then there's this fire that will come later. Now, those cadets... I wish I had the article. It would have been a lot more impressive. But those cadets, they might not have liked it that that mean old chaplain said those really bad things, that he warned them about the fires of hell. But like it or not, he was right. Does anybody here think that I would actually want to stand up and say, hey, there's eternal damnation waiting? for you if you don't accept Jesus. Does that ever sound like that would be a popular thing to say? No. But that's what it says right here in these verses and in many other places. There really is an everlasting, fiery punishment. I didn't make it up. I would never make that up. It's not a, a great way to build your church, right? He says, verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Now, it's not annihilation. Some people want you to think that um, God will annihilate. He'll just obliterate people and they won't have any consciousness. That's not what the Bible says. It's not annihilation. It's a constant awareness of being destroyed. Again, it's not very popular, certainly not very cool, to talk about the fires of hell. I'd rather not talk about it, to be honest. But 
then again, if it's real and I don't talk about it, then I'd be like a security guard that smells smoke, sees a fire, but I just don't want to wake you up because, you know, I just don't want to be rude and wake you up out of your sleep. Jesus talked a lot about hell. He actually talked more about hell than any other prophet in the Bible. Jesus. If you believe Jesus, if, if you even think that he's, his word is trustworthy, you have to believe in this everlasting fire. Jesus talked a lot, a lot about hell more than any other prophet because it is real and because he doesn't want you to go there. The Bible says, did you know this? That hell wasn't created for man, but for Satan and for his angels. D.L. Moody said it great. He said, any human being who goes to hell is a trespasser. Because hell wasn't created for us. Unfortunately, there will be trespassers in hell. Jesus talked about hell because he doesn't want us to go there. Paul talked about hell because he doesn't want you to go there. I have to talk about hell because I don't want you to go there. Verse 9 again, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Now, who are these? Who are these people that will be punished with this everlasting destruction? Verse 9, who are the, who are the punished? Well, back up verse 8. He says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on, number one, those who do not know God. And number two, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those who shall be punished with everlasting destruction are those, number one, who do not know God. And number two, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a really pointy question? A really in-your-face question? Like the guy who says, preacher, you gone from uh, preaching to meddling? Do you know God? Do you know God? Do you have a relationship with Him? It's the most important question ever asked. It's the most critical question I could ask you. Matthew chapter 7, you don't have to turn there. But verse 22, Jesus is speaking and He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and done many wonders in Your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew You. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's the question. Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, then you can find your future in verses 8 and 9. And I don't want that to happen to you. You can, the Bible says, very quickly begin a relationship with him today. You can begin the way that you begin a relationship with him is by obeying. Verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. It says, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the gospel mean? Good news. There's, there's an interesting thought. How do you obey good news? How do you obey good news? Well, this will help. The word obey there is hupakoa, and it means to listen, to hearken. And this is great. This is the second uh, definition under the word. It's of one who, on the knock at the door, comes to listen, to see who it is. That's the duty of a porter. Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You guys get it? Jesus stands at the door of every human heart and he knocks. And your reaction puts you in one of two categories. It separates you. Your reaction determines whether you are a sheep or a goat. Whether you are the wheat or the chaff. If you ignore his knocking, your future is certain destruction. The verse says they're from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The presence of the Lord, that word means actually his face. It's interesting because the people who deny the Lord while they're here on this earth, they are are running away from his face. There'll come a time when, there's no other way to put it, they will get their wish. They will see his face, not at all. They won't see his face. They'll be removed completely from his presence. From the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, if, if we open the door to him, then conversely, what are we going to see? We're going to see his glory face to face. Verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Where it says admired there, that word is to wonder, to wonder at, to marvel. We will, as, as the, we sing a song that says, I'll stand in awe of you. That's exactly what will happen. When he comes, those who don't know him, who are running from his face, will be cast into darkness. But we will stand and we will be in awe. We will admire him. Admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you who was believed. We will stand in awe of him at his beauty and the beauty of what he's done for us. Look now at verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's that, that word again title of our message counted worthy verse 11 therefore we also pray always for you that our god would count you worthy speaks of weight having weight on the balance you could say it this way paul is praying that you guys will be heavyweights now I'm, i'm actually trying to lose weight physically but god wants me to be a heavyweight when it comes to spirituality and how does he do it He does it through trials. Paul's basically saying, you notice Paul doesn't pray, hey, I hope your your trials quit. He doesn't say, I hope your trials end. He says, I hope that God continues what he's doing in you and continues to make you heavyweight. You guys know that gold, pure gold, is a lot heavier, like, I don't know, ounce per ounce or whatever it is, from that which has the dross, which has the extra gunk. Look Now, go with me, actually, to back at verse 5. We're going to start to wrap up here. Verse 5, he says, Which is manifest evidence, that's proof, your endurance is, is proof of the righteous judgment of God. I save this for last because I think it might have the most uh, bearing on our lives, particular today. The word judgment, krisis, remember? K-R-I-S-I-S. 
What does that sound like? Change the K to a C and you got crisis. Crisis. Webster's defines crisis as the turning point, for better or for worse. It's the time when, because of the situation that's arisen, you make a decision, you turn, one way or the other, for better, for worse. In the Greek, again, this word means to separate. Here's my closing point for you guys, for every Christian in the room. Are you going through a crisis? Some of you I know you're going through crisis. Some of you may be thinking, well, define crisis. I mean, I don't have the huge crisis, but I got this little crisis. Crisis means a turning point. A crisis is what separates. You could say a crisis separates the men from the boys. But also, a crisis is what separates like the tribulum. That which separates the heavy weight, the good, the valuable, from the chaff, the stuff that gets blown away. Crisis is the tribulum. A crisis is the refiner's fire. The crisis is that which heats up the gold so that the dross flies to the top, the heavy gold stays at the bottom, the dross flies to the top, and the silversmith scrapes off the dross, right? The dross is scraped off, and I know some of you guys, you know, this has been passed through email, some of you guys know this. If you ask anyone who works with silver, ask a silversmith, and you see him turning up the heat, anybody feel like you got heat, you got tribulation going on? He turns up the heat and he scrapes off the dross. He turns up the heat, scrapes off the dross. If you ask a silversmith, hey, when do you know it's done? He says, oh, that's easy. When I can see my reflection in that silver. You get it? Jesus is the silversmith. He wants to refine you. That crisis that you're dealing with today, it separates. Yeah, it separates the men from the boys. There might be some who walk out here today and say, well... My crisis, I don't know how to deal with it, and they just fold. It separates the wheat from the chaff, but it also separates the dross from the silver, from the gold. It separates it. It is a way that God is purifying, refining, getting rid of the crud that doesn't reflect Him. That's why it says in verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Do you get it? He brings crisis that we might glorify Him and that we reflect Him in the midst of this crisis, and you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Paul is basically saying, look guys, I hope God keeps you in that fire until you're pure. Until he's done with you. Until he's done with you and he can see his reflection in you. Until you are a reflection of him. Now, I don't know if that's what you want me to pray, but that's what I'm going to pray for you. So what I'm going to pray for me is that he will keep us in the fire until he's accomplished his purpose.